Welcome to The Complete. This is a bonus episode on Stanley Kubrick, our first and uh, and only at this point um, season of, uh, of this show. And uh, for, for everybody who knows us as a Stanley Kubrick podcast, uh, this is where we part ways, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's The Complete Kubrick. And we're going to move on to a new topic pretty soon. So, it's going to uh, be a whole new branding. I've got a company working on our logo. Um, we've got <laughs> uh, new t-shirts that we're going to be sending out to uh, to every person who ever worked on um, a, a film of the next person we're working on so that they can promote the show. <laughs> that is a uh, that is a tall order, Matt. And that's Matt making those promises, everyone, not Travis. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and that is Travis uh, talking. Hello, Travis. How you hey, doing? Hey, Matt. I'm it's doing just you and me good. today. So. That's it. Just like how we started. We're no com- guests. Coming in complete We're all circle. alone. So we we have nobody else to carry the load here. Uh, hopefully, it won't be uh, too 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 rough. Well, thankfully, it's a light load because it's just kind of grabbing all the catch-all little things that uh, we either missed or uh, all the little side projects or incomplete projects or documentaries it's all just the 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 ephemera that include that is surrounds all of kubrick's work so it'll be fun we'll just kind of go through them one by one why this didn't work why it got shelved and then we can also talk about some of the documentaries that were made about them and uh a couple other little uh, tidbits that i think are fun yeah exactly and and i also wanted to uh give us an opportunity to kind of sum up what we, how we felt about this journey and kind of, you know, anything that stuck out to us, uh, in the overall, uh, filmography, because, uh, I didn't want to tack that onto the eyes wide shut discussion when to focus on just that movie. And so I think, uh, I think this should be a, a relatively short show for us, which is uh, still a long podcast for most people. <laughs> but I yeah, think we'll just, it'll just be two hours instead of our normal. Yeah, three. exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think it'll I think it'll be good. So, uh, where do you where do you think we should start here, Travis? Do you want to start with just kind of what you uh, if there's any anything that you took away from this experience and well actually you know what before you get into it the first thing I wanted to say because I was going to wait wait for the end of this but we might as well let the listeners know that you will be uh journeying on with me on this podcast in future seasons uh rather than the uh initial concept of doing one get one host uh co-host per season uh you you were you were pretty fun to have around, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you around. I've 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 hired you full time here uh, for zero zero pay, and so I, I hope that's okay. Oh, I am I am more than happy to continue on this journey with you. Now we're life partners. <laughs> Don't tell <laughs> my I, wife. Shh, um, it's okay. We all know. <laughs> um, no, no. I, I think uh, you know this has been great, and I think it'll be fun to uh, to have the the. Um, continued conversation going um and uh, of course we'll still continue to have guests along the way but i think um i think it'll be fun to uh to see where um where the next director takes us and and how that builds on uh what we've learned here but speaking of what we've learned here what do you think uh what do you think you're going to be taking away from from this experience of watching the kubrick films in order well my biggest take 
my biggest takeaway, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be your permanent co-host. I appreciate that greatly. I had so much fun. Um, I, just like you, and we've had many conversations about it, uh, really appreciate watching a director uh, chronologically. And that was one of the things we talked about the most is doing this chronologically, which helps us see how someone develops. And I find that to be fascinating. And so I think the biggest takeaway I had from this experience on a personal level is that idea that watching someone grow and change as a director, watching them hone in on the things that are most important to them and watching uh, Stanley Kubrick like really find his voice. Um, You know, he started shouting at the beginning and then he was able to speak very clearly Um, no matter how maybe confusing some things get towards the end of his career. I think he was taking risks that he wasn't taking earlier um, so I think the, the big takeaways for me in doing this were course corrections, watching Stanley Kubrick always trying to improve. Um, so wherever he made mistakes in the past, you can see in his next film, he's corrected them. Uh, you know, going from fear and desire to killer's kiss, there was a huge, huge jump in terms of, uh, technicality, uh, working with actors And then you see it progress every film um, until Barry Lyndon, where he, I think he achieves his pinnacle in terms of dealing with actors and set pieces and a theme. And I think that's where he reaches his, his top point. And from there, he decides to go a little bit of a different direction. And I actually, in a second, I'm going to talk to you about my theory behind that. Uh, We'll get into that in a sec, but I think his course corrections, his forward thinking. Uh, he was always looking to expand and change the way in which films were made um, from removing himself from the studio system at an early stage in his life, which should have been death for a lot of directors of that age. Um, removing himself from that, making his own movies with his own singular vision, inventing technologies um, that had never been used before to be able to tell his stories the way he saw them and also inventing languages uh, for film that here we are years later and they're they're still working in so many different levels that you might have missed them you know we've said many a times we can come to Kubrick many different age points in your life and read different things into it and I think that was part of the language that he was creating in film and which also goes to my final big takeaway is universality we've used it a few times we've talked about it a few times and you know he was into this idea of how do I understand man and what makes them work? Why are they fallible? Why do they fail? And why do they succeed? And that was his his drive. And every one of his films can be boiled down to some sort of essence of that idea. And because he leaves so many things open-ended in terms of the processing of the information, it becomes something that anyone can kind of get involved with and see. And that's the universality aspect. And that's, those are the big three that I took away from this. I think if you were to ask me before this podcast started, it would be more about uh, violence and cynicism. And the end of this podcast, I see it as 
uh, he was a very human director looking at how humanity works. Um, he was concerned with that. And more specifically, not just humans, but he was more concerned with how men work. And uh, I think I, you know, refined that opinion throughout the course of our podcast as well. How about you? What were your big takeaways from this, Matt? Well, I, I agree with just about everything you you just said. Um, I I mean, I think the first thing for me is just how important it is to remember that you don't need to outgrow filmmakers who are more accessible or more um, appealing to you in your youth um, if they have the depth of um, technical skill and thematic underpinnings that somebody like Kubrick has. And, you know, I, I never wrote off him as a filmmaker. I always loved certain ones of his movies and never stopped talking about him as a filmmaker. But I think there was something in the back of my mind that said to me, I'm going to revisit some of these movies and they're not going to hit me the way that they did previously because of the films that I've watched in the ensuing years. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised to find that that's not the case uh, in most of these instances. And I think that's an important lesson for any person who's progressing through film to remember that there's a reason why you fall in love with certain movies when you are younger or when you haven't watched as many movies. Uh, and a lot of times those reasons fall by the wayside. You either get older or you have a different outlook on life or whatever it is. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also important to revisit some of the things that you appreciated when you were younger and um, look at them in a different light. And I think that's really where Kubrick shines is that these films can grow old, older with you and evolve in terms of what they're saying to you and what, um, what appeals to you and what he's talking about in the movies. And I think that aspect of it was uh, very satisfying for me to know that um, a film like Eyes Wide Shut in particular could mean one thing to me when the film came out and I was a teenager uh, and something fairly different to me today and um, on many different levels. That's a, and that's a great thing, I think. I yeah. think that's a, the sign of a, a really fantastic storyteller is that it's it can hit you in different levels and different eras of your existence. Yeah, it's, totally. And I think that speaks to the universality that you're talking about. You know, the, the, it's not just that he... I think sometimes you can think of universality as being sort of a um, accessibility. Uh, and that's... And his films are relatively accessible when compared to some of the other filmmakers who are as as dense and ambitious thematically as he is. But um, there's also 
a sense in which what he's dealing with is on such a complex and um, uh, ambitious level that the universality becomes uh, a way for people of all walks of life to be able to access his films uh, on an intellectual level, not just an emotional level, which I think is how sort of universality is typically like the Spielbergs of the world. Um, and, and really uh, interact with the films in a totally different way and have a, have a completely different response and yet get something out of them that I think is really um, central to the, to the films themselves. Uh, and so I think that aspect of it is, is really interesting to me and uh, was very rewarding in this process. Um, and then the other thing is just like, um, I think what I took away from his movies as I moved away from them and got older was what you're talking about. The sort of the striving for, um, humanity to, uh, improve and man to improve and, uh, for people to notice the, uh, oppression around them or the ridiculous human behavior around them and to try to get them to acknowledge it and change in some way. Um, but going back to them, I do see a great deal of the cynicism that people take away from them, which which is essentially the same thing. Uh, it's just maybe more negative than um, as I get further. I guess I, as I got further away from his movies, I saw it as more of the positive of striving to change of the of that passion. But I think watching the movies, there there is a very real darkness to them that I don't think is, uh, something that can be, uh, ignored or, um, pushed away. Um, and I think part of it is, uh, immature to a certain degree, but Mm -hmm. I think there's enough, uh, there. And I think it's, it's, um, I think there is enough of that striving for a solution or for at least people to be enlightened to the darkness that is in humanity, uh, that there, that there's, um, that it's legitimate and it's, um, it's something worth the, the darkness is something worth paying attention to. Uh, and I think that's where the films that we didn't like as much, uh, the Lolita's, the Clockwork Oranges, Full Metal Jackets, those films didn't feel like they had enough of that heft to reward the negativity uh, uh, that is sort of inherent in m- most, if not all of his films. Um, yeah. And, and I think that was the balance that he was struggling with throughout his career. Yeah, I agree. I think he, uh, I mean, he's holding a mirror up to society, but he's making sure you clearly know that this is his mirror. And, you know, there are, it is going to be, tainted a little bit by his his cynical nature which is funny because uh, <coughs> most of his cynicism uh or or it can be you know black humor or dark dark humor is uh you know most of the people find it so ridiculous that oh no one would ever be like this yeah and then years later you realize that there were many more truths in that cynicism mm-hmm. than there were just uh, humorous moments, you know, things that you think that these characters would be so out of, you know. I always think of, uh, you know, General Ripper 
in terms of that, where like no one would be that ridiculous or over the top about their thoughts about war and about, you know, human life. And then you look at the newspapers and you see, oh, no, that is not that is way too close to the truth. That's not far from the truth. That's uh, right on the money, which is uh, even more terrifying, which uh, which I think is, you know, something he had a. He had his finger on the yeah. uh, pulse of what kind, how people, how people thought, and I think uh, it was a very unique uh, voice in terms of being able to uh, deal with that for sure. Yeah, and I think the last thing um, I'll say is is uh, because you reminded me of it by saying that um, he he always wanted people to be sure it was his mirror. Um, is is just the observation that. Um, these are movies where it's always apparent that you're watching a movie. He was never a director concerned with presenting reality, uh, the illusion of reality in his films, the idea that editing would be seamless or cinematography would be naturalistic. Even when the lighting is naturalistic, it's in this very stylized way. Um, and, and the stories themselves almost, he's almost a, uh, protagonist in some of his films. And so I think that aspect of it, uh, was very interesting to see because it really made me think about why these movies appeal to kids or to people who are really getting into cinema. And I think a lot of it is that he showed you the, the workings of film, very clearly you were able to see kind of how he put together his films and even if he put them together perhaps better than almost anybody else ever did uh you could still see those seams because he wanted you to see them uh and and that was part of the film in a lot of these these movies you know in 2001 you are the person who's going on the space odyssey and so i think that aspect of it um is is really interesting and and uh and impressive that he was able to hit such a nerve with people while kind of shrugging off a lot of the conventions of uh Hollywood and uh film grammar that had been established in con- commercial filmmaking to get people to be invested in the story and not thinking about the fact that they were watching a movie. Nice. Yeah, I think uh that, that, that segues very nicely into this new theory I have. So we're talking about the artifice that he was never afraid of showing on screen, that this is not reality, this is a movie, this is a story that he is telling. So I was, you know, going back, looking at comments, looking at people's uh, reactions to Kubrick's last three movies, Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining. Um, and most of the people... Uh, I think it was Keith who really sparked this uh, idea in me, was uh, the main problem is the acting. A lot of people have a problem with this now, this like over-the-top fake, like it's almost to the, like it's it doesn't feel real, the, uh, the way that these people are communicating with each other, the way they're interacting with each other. And it's like he's ratcheted up his mise-en-scene which is really very clearly this is a movie and he's turned it into the acting as well 
And an interesting piece of information I found out since we've done this podcast that um, when Kubrick started The Shining, one of the movies that he was obsessed with and he made all of his actors watch before they started filming was David Lynch's Eraserhead. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. And I did not know this until I was listening to another podcast on The Shining. And once I heard that little piece of information, it all clicked. The last three movies, he he moved into that artificial acting as well. This um, everything is weird because of how the people are saying it is. You know, it's that it's that sense that. These people are also actors within, and therefore he can make their performances also be odd and stilted and and removed, which also points to you know a lot of his his themes. And I thought that was very interesting that that might be a a key or a um, an entryway for some people to review the, his last three movies in a different light to kind of see a different level that he was trying to work at in terms of uh, acting and the craft of acting. Because if you look at Eraserhead, no one is, no one is, it's, there's like, it's almost like there's line readings, there's uh, emotion and weirdness in the way that they're presenting the dialogue or the way that they're physically acting. And once you kind of see that as an influence, you can see that he was maybe trying to move in that direction with his acting in his last three movies. And I found that to be really fascinating. What do you think about that? Is that something that makes sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about the similarities between Blue Velvet and Eyes Wide Shut as well. Just the the sort of seamy underbelly of, uh, uh, you know, perceived... uh, ideal society yeah um and and just the idea that he you know i i go back to the quote of his that uh that you know there's there's real and then there's interesting and i think Mm. you know he was always much more concerned with being interesting than with being real uh and I think part of that is just, you know, he was a, a photographer, he was a, a cameraman, he was focused on the cinematography, and I think he always wanted to capture truth with an image, and to do that a lot of times what you have to do is uh, make something artificial, mm-hmm. uh, to stage things, to, to create your world um, rather than than try to capture uh, the world as it is. You know, he was not a documentary filmmaker uh, after, after you know, a couple of, of films. And, and um, he, uh, and, and part of that was, was making sure that, um, that he could create things uh, that, that reflected reality, not that, that were actual reality. Yeah, and even you can even argue that his documentary films he made weren't documentaries yeah. either. Yeah, he staged every. I mean, his most famous the photo that got him into Look magazine, he staged that photo. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and that's you know that's from an, from the beginning. That's uh that's him in a nutshell. That idea of trying to create truths but having to organize them so they're yeah. the proper truth that he wants to convey. So let's talk about um, 
Well, let's 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 first of all talk about um, the uh, the um, the documentaries that were speaking of documentaries that were mm-hmm. um, made about Kubrick um, after he after he passed. Uh, the The first one that uh, that was made really quickly after I think it's, it was actually included on the initial Eyes Wide Shut DVD even. Um, which is uh, the Kubrick um, A Life in Pictures, uh, which was narrated by Tom Cruise um, and is, is uh, as long as one of our podcast episodes. <laughs> it's a, oh, I know. I put it in and deep. I was like, oh, wow, this is two and a half hours long. Yeah, I realized, like, I didn't know how long it was. And then, uh, like, an hour plus in, I realized, like, we're only on, like, strange love here this is not gonna <laughs> end anytime soon um yeah it was directed by jan harlan his life is a long-term uh, produ- producing partner and uh and brother-in-law brother-in-law yeah. yes um so i mean what did you think of this film and also just like the documentaries uh in general we can touch on the other ones real quickly but i would say out of all the documentaries this was probably the the best in terms of its digestibility uh its amount of information and because it's directed by jan harlan and it's very personal um there's lots of personal touches and personal behind the scenes photos and home movies that i don't think i've seen in any of the other documentaries so i found it to be it was nice i mean i think one of the unfortunate aspects of it is it was made so quickly after eyes wide shut that it's kind of has a little too much tom and nicole who (laughs) right you know i guess were very available at that moment because they were uh you know doing the press for the movie so they had had a captive audience and talking with them um i think maybe a couple five years removed we probably would have had a better um maybe a better assembly of people to talk, but there were a lot of, you know, they, they talked to a lot of people from uh, his films, which I found to be good. Um, but once again, me, me being the person I am, as much as I love hearing actors recount tales, I prefer to hear technicians recount tales. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of that in there. You know, the fact that he, he, you know, one time we had the guy who uh, fixed his camera and turned it into the, uh, added the uh, NASA Zeiss lenses to it so he could uh, shoot at 0.7 uh, f-stop, which allowed him to shoot with a candlelight in the in uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff fascinates me, and I would love to have a whole documentary just on his technical achievements. Um, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, but, the uh, documentary came across uh, definitely like. Um, a studio produced uh, bonus extra on a mm-hmm. on a DVD or Blu-ray, um, and it's just m- a more comprehensive version of those extras. Um, and so it was it was um, a a good overview of his life um, and of his, kind of the conventional wisdom around each of his films. Yeah, uh, and I think probably uh, if if someone was going to only watch one Kubrick documentary, it would be this one because I think you get a a pretty good sense of everything surrounding uh, his life and and sort of who he was as a person. Yeah, um, and I think who he was as a person was pretty 
boring. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, I think, I want to say, mm, if it wasn't for the fact that we watched like three other documentaries and they all say the same thing, uh, I would say that this was a big kind of like puff piece to kind of dispel all the he's a tyrannical director that's meticulous yeah. and you know mean to his actors and he's a, a recluse, recluse yeah. and all that crazy stuff that was being said about him this was kind of like a no see he's a nice guy and he plays with his kids but even his kids in the movie sometime were like well he was all right you know he wasn't always the best dad but you could see why he was uh he was you know he really put a lot of himself into the creation yeah, of his films yeah he was a films. workaholic yeah which, you know, that would be said about any uh, any dad who was barely, you know, was always working. Right. The only difference is, is he put his office in his home so he could have at least some connection with his family and his kids and his friends. Because otherwise, I don't think he'd ever see anyone. Yeah, and I think that that is definitely uh, shown in, in two of the other documentaries that we watched. S is for Stanley. Uh, which is about uh, a uh, assistant, basically a, dr- a driver that he had um, employed for uh, many decades. Uh, and then Boxes, which is a, uh, I think it was like an episode of a BBC show about um, the, the guy who was tasked with going through Kubrick's files after he passed. And, and it's, he had, he had just hundreds of if if not thousands of boxes of um <laughs> notes and uh production details and memos and research and all this stuff i mean one of the things we'll get to when we talk about napoleon like he had a file a, a card file system that basically looked like it, they used to have in the library uh for the dewey decimal uh card oh, files yeah. that was <laughs> indexing and each card was literally every day of napoleon's life where he was and what he did on that day of his life as uh, you know to the best of of uh any sort of knowledge that had been passed down yeah um so that was the the level of detail of these these boxes that people are still combing through at the at the archive where they ended up moving them that's uh, at a cambridge right yeah yeah yeah, i think it is yeah um so so I, I mean, I think both of those documentaries, neither one of them is is particularly well made as a film. Um, no. But they both pretty much say the same thing, which is that this guy was meticulous, demanding, but also very kind and uh, loyal to the people who worked around him. Um, and you know, he expected the same level of commitment from everybody who worked for him that he had towards the work that he was doing. Uh, and so in that way, he was very demanding, but he yeah. almost took it for granted that the people around him would would be that committed. So it was, or, or have lives outside of their life they had yeah. shared. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the... I think the S is for Stanley. That was the one sad, like when he kind of like kept on holding him there because uh, he needed him, and then the guy couldn't get home in time to say goodbye to his dad before he died. I was kind of yeah. like, ooh, that's a uh, that's a little much. But then you could see that from that point, like he Stanley knew that he made a mistake, and he was very present in that guy's life to help him with any problems or anything after that. But yeah, I think yeah, S is for Stanley. Like none of them. Even the life in pictures, none of them do 
the visual style of Stanley Kubrick any justice. As is for Stanley tries to do some interesting visual things, but it's just so poorly done that <laughs> it's laughable. Yeah. Like some of the like dolly shots or, or steady cam shots or long zooms or you know, they just in boxes I just found I found more fascinating than interesting as a documentary, just seeing the meticulous nature of him that he even went as far as having his own boxes manufactured yes. <laughs> for him so he would have the perfect box for his stuff to go into. <laughs> like that part was just great. That and the other thing that always interested me was that he would uh, measure the advertisements in the newspaper yeah, yeah. to make sure he was getting the exact space he was paying for and then calling to complain when they uh, shied him, uh, you know, a millimeter or two. <laughs> yeah. I was struck by, I think it was in a life in pictures, the, uh, the, the instructions for when he went away, uh, taking care of the cats but uh yeah i mean uh that was that was funny um and i think just again like i mean it, it's it, he was an interesting person don't get me yeah. wrong but i think his his life was sort of as you would expect it to be based on uh the films that he made and the career that he had um yeah so i mean i think you know i think all of these are worthwhile and 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 there is currently a um a, a documentary uh about uh, Leon Vitali that's in theaters that we were not able to uh, see. We missed yeah. it when we came to when it came to Boston, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But I think probably there wouldn't be, uh, based on what I've read about it, there's not a lot of, of uh, unique insight into his life uh, in that film either. Um, but I, I, I do want to see it just because I do find Leon Vitali's choice to, uh, you know, come on board with Kubrick in, in later work. Um behind the scenes after performing in his uh in his film in Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's the that's the part that interests me too. And I think the the documentary I want to see uh is more in a line with like something like Room 237 where I want to see like not not a conspiracy theorist like in 237, but I would love to see a documentary about like film theorists and psychologists and mm. people who are really invested in the themes that Kubrick was talking about. Less about Kubrick as a person, but more about Kubrick as a yeah. filmmaker. Less actors, more kind of like a theoretical and uh, you know scholarly work. A documentary about him that way would be more interesting. So yeah, something like two, three, seven, but less crackpot theories. Yeah, and, well, uh, I was struck in Life and Pictures too by how kind of um, unimportant the observations from other filmmakers were. I mean, I didn't find either oh. Woody Allen or Martin Scorsese to be particularly well, that, illuminating. They basically I mean, just said like when they saw the movies. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so close to his death, you. You, if you said bad things about him, it wasn't right. going to make the cut because it was a that was like a celebration of his life as opposed to a a critical analysis. Which yeah. you know, I I would like now, you know, what is it? Almost almost ten years past uh, or twenty years past. It would be nice to have something yeah. that is a little more. Well, sp uh, speaking of of like the film theorists, we we should also talk about some of the books that we. Uh, oh yeah, that we read um, or or referenced uh, while we were going through these films. I mean, I think the 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 big giant one, uh, both in terms of uh, how how much content there is in it and the literal size of it, uh, is the um, is the Tashin 
Kubrick book. Um, mm. And uh, I, I do, there is a smaller version of the Tashin book that's available uh, that uh, is basically, yeah, it just doesn't have all the photography that um, the film stills that are included in the, the larger version. Yeah, it has a has a bunch, but not as many. Yeah, it's uh, it's called their Bibliotheca uh, series. It's kind of like a yeah, it's nice because it's way cheaper. And I do recommend it. It's it's uh there's there's a lot of really good content in it. You know, I think you would look at it at the large one and just assume it's a a coffee table book and who reads coffee table books. But yeah, exactly. Uh, there there is uh, the writing in it is very interesting. There's a lot of interviews with Kubrick. Um, and there's also uh, an appendix with um, references to the other films that he was making or, or could have made. Um, so it, it is. And there's a, a fan, really fantastic book. chronology at the end yeah. where it basically takes you through his life and all the stuff that he did. And like I start, he started the script on this day and he, yeah. I, I like that a lot. That was good to keep things in order for what we're talking about here. And then there's the, um, the Michel cement book, uh, Kubrick, uh, the definitive edition. Um, and that, I think that book, I, I expected to, to look through it more as we were going, but cement does really take a, a sort of bird's eye view perspective on his career. And so he's constantly comparing, uh, films from different eras to other films. And it's really more about the overarching themes of his career as opposed to the individual going through the individual movies and analyzing them specifically. Uh, but as a book, it's very interesting. And, uh, I really enjoyed the, the, uh, discussion that he had on the Barry Lyndon disc, um, about, about that movie. And I, I think he, uh, while I don't necessarily always agree with his opinions about Kubrick's films, uh, I th- I find him very interesting and thought provoking as a as a writer and a and a thinker about his movies. Yeah, I agree. I I, I enjoyed that book. Uh, I liked the way it was broken up into themes. Less of like this is yeah. him as a you know it was more about themes and then interviews, which I also enjoyed, like very specific interviews. Uh, um, yeah, no, I agree. It was it. I was also kind of like with the with the Tashin book. I was going film by film. Like I wouldn't right. read ahead. I would read. I would watch the movie a couple times, take my notes, read the Tashin book, and then that was that. Yeah. Um, with the cement, I just sat down and you know over the course of like a week read the whole thing, and kind of took some notes, made some made some uh, specific uh, thoughts that uh, the book provoked, and then kind of put it down. I didn't. I didn't review it again, but it was great. It was good to have that kind of, uh, like I said, that critical overarching theory of kind of his work and how it related to his other works. And, but at the same time, I didn't want that to occupy too much of my brain. Cause then I wouldn't be thinking about my own right. thoughts. So it was nice to just read it and then put it aside just to get a, an idea. Was that, were there any other books that you looked at? Um, yeah, I looked at, uh, Michael Hare's, uh, a book called Kubrick. Um, yeah. He took. He was. He was tasked to write some Vanity Fair articles about him during the press for Eyes Wide Shut, and before I think he published only one of the articles before he uh, Kubrick died, and so he instead took the remaining articles and the one he had written and kind of fashioned them into a book about his time with him and his life with him, and I found that to be really interesting because he wasn't. 
he wasn't angry at him like the uh, screenwriter from Eyes Wide Shut, who's yeah. just really mad Frederick that Kubrick, yeah. yeah, mad that Kubrick messed with his work so much. But he wasn't he wasn't just all praise and glowing. He was very real about how he was and how he was as a person. And it's a short book. I want to say it's like 150 pages. It's not it's not an epic tome uh, about him. But it's nice to have a little personal kind of like, you know, his. I think his, you know, he says, uh, Stanley Kubrick called me on this day and we've had a, uh, five year phone conversation ever, you know, since. Yeah. And cause that's Kubrick was just a phone guy. He would talk to you and he would talk for five, six hours at a time about everything. And I found that to be really interesting. So I like that. That was my, that was my learning about Kubrick as a person book. You know, um, I really appreciate it. It's just called Kubrick by Michael Hare. I, I, I highly su- suggest it for people who really, uh, really enjoy learning more about Stanley Kubrick. Cool. Yeah. And the, and then the last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, a really invaluable internet resource, which is, uh, a site called visual memory, which I think grew out of a old school, uh, news group, uh, on the the internet from the early 90s uh, mm. of um, a Kubrick fan uh, group and uh, they basically collected just about uh, every write, writing you could think of um, related to each one of his films um, and interviews with him theories and then they have sort of archived exchanges that people had having conversations about each of his films, um, including some conversations about Eyes Wide Shut before it was released, uh, just sort of talking about what they thought the movie would be about or um, different things about it. It's, it's, it's a pretty interesting resource. Um, and Yeah, there's, there's some great some great articles that you linked uh, for us to read uh, going into some of the conversations that um, really, really interesting. Lots of scholarly uh, paperwork on him, which I I like a lot, just really theoretical or theory or talking about like films in terms of culture or in terms of a very certain uh, context that I appreciated a lot. Yeah. So if you Google it, I think it's a co UK site. If you Google visual memory Kubrick, it'll pop up, but I, I highly recommend you know, if you ever watch one of these movies or if you're going back through the podcast to look up those those articles because they are are very interesting to uh, to check out. Um, let's talk about a few of the things that we I think one one central thing that, that we felt like we kept at the end of uh, each podcast. We would be like, well, we covered that pretty well. Ah. Oh. We forgot to talk about the music. <laughs> we always forgot to talk about the music, which was uh, I think which we talked always about sad. it a lot for two thousand one in particular. Yes, but but I think yeah, I mean I think that you know especially Clockwork Orange and um, and The Shining have uh, Wendy Carlos's music in it, and uh, I think she's she's a a kind of iconic persona in. Um, electronic music she was one of the first people to really work with the moog synthesizer Mm. um in in a uh in a publicized fashion um and she's also part of kind of she was i believe the first in sort of the long rich tradition of trans people in electronic music really making 
you know, pioneering works um, all yeah. the way up to, to today with people like DJ Sprinkles and, and things like that. Um, but uh, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on her contributions I mean, to uh, those two films? I mean, it's a, you know, when you look at it in terms of 2001, where Kubrick kind of took classical music into the sci-fi realm yeah. and married those two concepts together, um, the next natural progression was to marry classical music with modern uh, electronic music, which was, you know, being done at the time by, you know, Wendy Carlos. Um, and, you know, the fact that the fact that Kubrick, you know, for any person who considers him, uh, you know, a uh, masochist or a, uh, uh, you know, men doesn't concern himself with women, you know, any of that sexism kind of thing that, you know, he worked with Wendy Carlos, a trans woman for two pictures and almost a third as well. And then ended up going with it, just some different sounds and used some of her work. I think uh, it that's the one uh, in the Barry Lind was it the Barry Lyndon? No, which 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 uh, which one which one of his films had the uh, in depth conversation with uh with Wendy? Oh, it was The Shining. Yeah. It was The Shining. Yeah, and the fact and then she had like was, an awesome cat T shirt on. Oh, she and she had cats all yeah. throughout her apartment yeah. too, <laughs> uh, but she has that unused part of the score. That I think is used in uh, Stanley Kubrick yeah. makes a movie kind of uh, that uh, Vivian Kubrick put together, um, and that stuff is fascinating. And the fact that he worked with her many times and respected her, uh, I think, dispels any of that kind of rumor that he was sexist or anything like that. Because um, you know that might you know because he was he was working with her right as she was transitioning. It wasn't a she was already transitioned. I think right around that time of A Clockwork Orange was when I think her first professional credit as Wendy, um, as opposed to her former name, yeah. um, which I think her records were released as. Um, yeah, well, they, they've, they've since been sort of repressed. Um, and yeah. like, so any of the CDs and everything have, have Wendy on them. I mean, I think her her contribution to a clockwork orange is pretty essential to the feeling of that movie and i think a lot of the other music in that film is a little silly um you know beyond the the beethoven stuff Um, i mean the william tell overture played twice the speed yeah um And, and, you know, I mean, that the, I think the opening credits of A Clockwork Orange are probably its pinnacle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so I think, I think that, you know, that's, that's a, a, certainly an important thing uh, to mention uh, yeah. for and his her films. S- her soundscapes for The Shining are just yeah. insane. That, again, like, I, I mean, the opening credits of The Shining are spectacular as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, the, tone, the tone that is set for both of those movies. Uh, essential. Uh, yeah, essential. Like the visuals, the visuals are great, but that tone uh, that Wendy sets out is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was one of the things where towards the ends we're just like, ah, oh, we didn't touch on that. I mean, the other movies I think we touched pretty. You know, we touched on the pop pop music that was introduced in uh, in Full Metal Jacket, and we talked about the music in, yeah. in Eyes Wide Shut. But it was those two films that we kind of we had so much to talk about that I felt. I think we both felt that it was uh, doing it a disservice by not mentioning her in the work. So, and then um, to that, yeah, yeah, um, and then um, the 
the other big thing um, I wanted to talk about on this show was uh, some of his films that didn't end up being actual films. Uh, he worked for uh, the Lost Projects. He worked for a long time on uh, many different projects, um, but I th- I think I want to touch on four of them here because I think they were kind of the closest to being completed. Um, the first one was actually a full script that he wrote uh, in the 50s that was actually in the news uh, this year um, because it was uh, recently dis- discovered um, intact and uh, people had uh, previously uh, thought of it as a lost script um, and it's it was called The Burning Secret. It was made uh, before paths of glory right or was it after paths yeah. of glory no it was going to be made after see. the killing yeah after 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 paths of glory oh, okay. um yeah after paths of glory oh no 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 you're right it was after the killing before paths of glory and it i think it was shelved because a lot of people said it was too risque um yeah the the concept of the film was that a uh, a man is using a, a small boy to kind of uh woo his mother um, at some spa resort kind of setting. So it's uh, building an unhealthy relationship with a small boy um, to try to, you know, basically have sex with the boy's mom. And uh, so a lot of people found it to be, um, you know, really kind of hard to uh, hard to stomach in the censors at the time. And, uh, you know, then he would blow that out of the water by making Lolita. Yeah, it's interesting know, that, that that didn't didn't sell. And his 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 decision after that was to to try to do Lolita, um, but I, obviously I, the reason he was able to get Lolita was because he made Spartacus, which made a ton of money, and so he was able to have a little bit more cachet and, yeah. and use his his um, his you know built up uh, credibility to yeah to, there's lots of our lots of oscars involved in spartacus so he was able to use that weight to kind of get his movie made you know what's interesting is that uh his assistant on 2001 a space odyssey andrew birkin he made this movie in 1988 that's and right with it, faye dunaway yeah and it was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's been a lot of talk that that, uh, that this script could be made into a movie today. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that's such a great idea. <laughs> no, I have no desire to see, like, I mean, based on, I mean, we'll talk further later down the road. But, I mean, well, yeah. screw it, let's talk about it now. Um, based on AI, uh, you know, I don't want to see a, a Kubrick you know, written film yeah. made by someone that isn't Kubrick because it doesn't have the same value that I think the director would put into it. So let's get let's skip over Napoleon for a second and talk about AI because I watched AI last night. Nice. I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Uh, <laughs> so I saw AI in theaters um, and, with high expectations and pretty much considered it to be the worst movie I'd ever seen in a theater. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I, I've, you know, many years have passed, uh, 15 plus years, and there are many, many people who I respect greatly who um, regard this movie very highly. Um, you know, I've seen it on lists of the best films uh, of the 2000s, um, 
there there's actually like a Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, review of it on Letterboxd where he just says like only Kubrick and Spielberg working on multiple planes could produce a masterpiece like this or something like that and you know gives mm-hmm. it five stars um, I liked it significantly more this time around uh, but I still didn't like it very much and I don't think it I think it it's it's an very odd movie in that there are times in which it feels very much like Spielberg is trying to copy Kubrick's yes. tone and style um which is just wrong and 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 then there are huge stretches that just feel so much like a Spielberg movie and I think a lot of the concepts behind some of the scenes feel very Kubrickian and yet Spielberg laces it with the the terrible music all like playing loudly all through every scene. And there's all these very bland sort of sweeping camera movements that have no relevance to the story being told and sort of feel just like a generic Marvel movie feels today. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, all the action set pieces Kubrick never would have filmed. Yeah. And we never would have had those like long actions, you know, it would be all the subtlety is removed by Spielberg. Yeah. Hammers, hammers home, all the stuff that he he's known for. And that's that, that was the same thing that turned me off from it. I've seen it probably, I want to say I've given it four shakes. Oh, wow. Saw it in the theaters. I, you know, watched it when it came out on DVD and then I think probably about four years ago I watched it again and then someone else once again you know like you said someone's like oh you really got to give that another shot it's it's amazing and then I watch it again and I still can't get that you know the potential of what could have been versus the potential of what we got and you know and the reality of what we got is doesn't I can't make those connections in my head well and also um it just feels I mean, I just, I try to turn off my, like, Kubrick connection brain um, mm. and just watch the movie as a movie. Uh, and it's very hard because, I mean, it, it is very close to the treatment that Kubrick produced uh, in yeah. the early 90s when he was thinking about making this movie. Um, and so you do get the sense of, like, how he was thinking about this intellectually. And yet I don't feel like the story ever really comes together. And I think Kubrick would have known that as he was making the movie and the the assumption that somehow a filmmaker like Kubrick, who in particular on his last four movies, uh, essentially came to them without any concept uh, of of a finished script and developed them as he was filming uh, the idea that, that that would have been frozen in stone uh, through the entire production process uh, seems completely wrong-headed to me. Um, and, I mean, I think it's interesting because the ending this time around didn't... I didn't hate it as much, I think because I knew mm. that it was coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I was a little... I was, a little uh, I was able to prepare myself for it but the the build up to it it's just it's so saccharine the way that it's produced and i also just 
didn't believe for a second that this woman would choose to keep this super creepy, weird kid around. Like they never, they never sell me on the idea that she starts to feel affection towards this robot because the robot is so constantly acting like basically like a Chucky doll. Like I don't even, he's like, obviously he he's acting like a sociopath. And so it's yeah, so there's... weird to me that like she would, she would start to, you know, think of him as a, as a person. They never really sell me on that choice that and she I, makes and, to make this robot fall that's... in love with her. And I think that's one of the things in Kubrick's original treatment. He dis, he he uh, ejected right away. Uh, she never loves him. Yeah. And he's a placeholder. And then when she has the ability to have a child, it's not like he does something to cause him to be ejected from the family. As soon as they have a child, she she goes, okay, get rid of him. We don't need that anymore. Yeah. And then the quest of trying to get get his mother's love is much more poignant and sad. Uh, you know, he spends, he goes, if I become a real boy, then she'll love me. And in this movie, there's less of that. It's more of a, he doesn't fit into society, so let's eject him. And then his quest to gain yeah. his mother's love is less less important because it becomes a fun adventure. And it shouldn't be a fun adventure. It should be sad and heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. And I think Kubrick would uh would have uh, spent less time on the spectacle and more time on the what makes us human. And that's, you know, that's what the impetus for the script was. How far along does uh, artificial intelligence go before we have to admit that it is as real as we are because what makes us different from something else that thinks? Yeah. And that was the thing he concerned himself with. And Spiel Spielberg doesn't concern himself with that. He He makes, like, you know... He does his movie of people looking. <laughs> Scenes of people looking at something. Yeah, and Jude Law doing a Fred Astaire impersonation. It just yeah. doesn't really make sense no. to me. And then the Robin Williams voice coming oh, in God. at the uh so and and just the over over lush spectacle of the special effects. It's almost like he said, Oh, well Kubrick really wanted to wait till special effects were awesome, so I'm gonna really load it with special effects and Kubrick never would have been that garish and everything. He would have he would have made the world feel really old and lived in and gross. And, you know, look at look at Clockwork Orange. He made that world pathetic and sad and that's you know he would have made that you know the future of any future is pathetic and sad looking he wouldn't not have probably gone as crazy and garish yeah there's no tron motorcycle riders in the kubrick future um no not at all all right well so that was that was a that was a little disappointing uh (laughs) yeah it was i mean i do i do appreciate the like i think the ending is probably the only thing that that uh that Spielberg kept that probably Kubrick would have kept um, because, but then again, I think Kubrick at the last moment would have, would have never would have left us with the boy going to sleep and then us not knowing what the future was going to hold. I don't think he would have given us a satisfying ending. By the way, like what, like how does, how does this kid like what's, where's his power come from? Cause he doesn't eat. I, we never see him plugged in or anything. Like how does he survive for two like the whole thing just didn't it all seemed like borderline allegory but like yeah it, i don't know it didn't make sense to me <laughs> no 
No. I'm sorry, just... everybody, because there's there's sure are a lot of people out there who really love that movie. Yeah, I'll, we'll say right now, we're probably not going to be doing a complete Spielberg anytime soon. Yeah, I would love to do that, though, but I think I would just it, there would be a lot of... Uh, it would be a very a controversial size. season. <laughs> yeah. okay. We'd lose a lot of friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's let's touch on Napoleon really quickly, because there's uh, obviously a overwhelming amount of information. and In fact, Tashin produced a book just on Kubrick's unproduced Napoleon. Um I guess the the only real question on this, because there's so much information out there that people can find for themselves uh, on this film, it was a movie that he uh, all but was ready to start filming uh, after 2001, and then the, the financing fell through, um, and he shifted to Clockwork Orange. Um, I guess the thing that I want to ask you is, when you look at all of this stuff, when you look at what he was going to create, based on the excerpts of the scripts that are around, um, the the description of the story. If you could choose between having what we have now in Barry, in Barry Lyndon uh, and what was going to be presented <laughs> in Napoleon, would you go back in time and give Kubrick the money to make Napoleon and never have... Barry Lyndon again, and I say I I bring up this comparison, being fully aware that they are very different films about very different central characters, um, but obviously he used a lot of the the kind of background research that uh, that he had yeah. for Napoleon for Barry Lyndon. So what what do you what would be your your decision uh, for that? You know, I don't I don't think he would have made Barry Lyndon after no. making Napoleon. Yeah. Like he just he just wouldn't have because he would have been satisfied or happy with yeah. making the period piece he wanted to make. Um, I think I'm I'm fine. I'm I'm happy. I liked Barry Lyndon a lot. I think it's a it's a subtler, more nuanced and less well known piece, which allows more people to kind of find themselves in the film and work through the film. Whereas Napoleon has so much baggage and so many other interpretations. That yes, maybe his would have been the definitive Napoleon film, but I think it wouldn't have been as impactful, especially because you know I'm thinking about the choices of who he was thinking it. It would have been, it most likely would have been um, uh, Jack Nicholson as Napoleon. Um, he was pretty much clear on getting him to be his Napoleon. And I think that would have, I don't think that, I don't think it would have worked. It's pretty weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it would have flopped. And I think, you know, the reason why the funding fell through was up to, you know, a Napoleon film was just released and it failed. Yeah. And I think, I think Kubrick's also, it would have been another him putting a lot of effort into something for it to not be uh, commercially successful, which might have kind of halted his production for a lot of things from the future on. Yeah, I mean, I think Napo- I think Barry Lyndon is one of the best movies ever made. So it's hard for me to imagine that Napoleon could have been better. I think the one thing that we missed out on uh, was the fact that Kubrick never made a biopic, and mm. it, it biopics are so shitty that you kind of wish that somebody like Kubrick who 
in a lot of ways transformed a number of genres yeah um, could have offered up something that was a little bit more interesting from a technical and structural perspective yeah but i mean from all the from all the all the notes he has and how he was leaning in the film it would have just basically been almost the same as barry linden it would have been about watching watching someone strive to be you know the greatest of some you know to be respected and to uh, accumulate all this power and then to watch them make mistakes and lose all that power right um so yeah, I think I think he he was able to tell the same story in another movie, and I don't think he would have added much more because I think he would have concerned himself with Napoleon's flaws, and I think that it, it would be an interesting in terms of a character study of a human being, but I think scholars of Napoleon and people who really loved Napoleon or would want to see this movie would find would find that the movie isn't as good as they want it to be and it would have just gotten critically panned probably yeah um so the last the last film uh that film parentheses not film that i want to touch on is uh the aryan papers which is his holocaust movie um it, it was about a uh a mother and son was it a son or a daughter? Yeah, yeah, mother and son uh, who uh, were Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, who were had Aryan papers. Basically, had uh, were posing as Gentiles in order to uh, evade the authorities during the Holocaust. Um, he had uh, again. He had a, a woman cast uh, in the role. Uh, he had taken shots of her in costumes. Uh, they were scouting locations this was going to be kubrick's first film made out of england for decades uh he was going to go to the mainland europe yep um and then uh spielberg uh conceived of wrote uh (laughs) shot uh edited and released schindler's list in the time that i think kubrick was just on the phone for one phone call through that whole period. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, uh, and so he decided to abandon the project. Um, at the same time, Billy Wilder was also, um, I think actually had been considered for directing Schindler's list, uh, when the, uh, Uh when the book was initially optioned. Um, so we have two, uh, sort of towering directors from, um, previous generations uh, potentially making a Holocaust movie, and of course Billy Wilder himself was a, um, a, a refugee from the Holocaust. He came before uh, the Holocaust yeah. happened, but he, he had family that uh, I think I believe his parents were were murdered uh, in the Holocaust. Um, so I guess again the question is, you know is Schindler's list worth having missed out on this, these films or these potential movies? Um, and also just like, what would, what do you think a, a Holocaust film from Kubrick would look like? And what do you think interested him specifically about, um, this, this great crime? 
I think I think the thing that interested him and from all the readings I've been doing about it is the how could humanity go this far as to do this such you know such a cruel vicious and total um, annihilation of another group of people um, how could we as fellow humans allow this to kind of get that far that seemed to be like his concern and the thing that I think it weighed really heavily upon him I think uh, there's an interview with his wife Christiane who's who said like the greatest thing that happened was that we didn't make yeah. that movie because he was so uh, in a constant state of depression and sadness, trying to tormenting himself with how to do this in a proper way that wasn't either glorifying the events that happened or, you know, just making it so that the story would be the central thing and to be able to like show that humanity still maybe has a chance because it was such a bleak a bleak idea and a bleak way of telling the story that it kind of didn't give anyone any sort of hope where i think spielberg's movie is all about hope the hope of survival and the hope of there are good people that will risk themselves to save others and i don't think kubrick had that at all in his script i think it was more of a what level and what depths of inhumanity can we get to to survive and i think uh i think it really would have been a really rough watch yeah i think it would have been really hard to watch yeah what about you what are you thinking about that no i mean i think when when we were talking about you know what eyes wide shut is really about it, it's it's pretty it's a pretty bleak movie but the surface of it has a lot of other things going on and it makes it a more palatable watch and man i i mean what surface thing could be going on to make you able to to experience the holocaust in a way that yeah. made it more palatable um so it, it's hard for me to imagine with Kubrick's worldview, um, it, it's interesting to me that he would choose to make a Holocaust movie. Um, you know, obviously he made a movie about a uh, nuclear war where the world ends at the end of the movie. Um, and he made it into a comedy. So he's obviously able to sort of um, bring these, these deep, deeply depressing and disturbing issues into a more um, accessible film. But uh, this is certainly one movie that I do not uh, mourn the loss of. And I think it, in a lot of ways, you know, I haven't seen Son of Saul. I've seen many, many other Holocaust-related movies. I think I'm not, you know... Uh, sorry to like dig on Steven Spielberg all through this episode. I'm not the biggest fan of Schindler's list. Uh, I think it's a well-made movie and deserving of its uh, praise for um, raising awareness about the Holocaust. Um, But I don't think it represents, I I don't think it it allows people to fully comprehend what happened. Uh, And in the same way that 
documentaries like Shoah and um, the Renee documentary. Oh, Night uh, and Night Fog. And Fog do. Half a, a half hour of that yeah. gives you a sense of the scope uh, much, much greater yeah. than Schindler's List does. Um, and uh, I think probably the best documentary or best fictional film about the Holocaust that I've seen is uh, Au Revoir La Saint-Font, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, which does not take place at the camps. It's, uh, takes place at a boys boarding school in France. Um, so I think directly confronting this issue is extremely difficult and, uh, not necessarily, uh, achievable in any real way. So I, I, you know, I think it would have been interesting to see obviously, but I'm not, I'm not sad that, he yeah. wasn't able to actually uh, accomplish what he set out to do. Yeah, it's a you know that kind of atrocity is a documentary. It's a document to show you know how and and the facts of it to kind of put into perspective uh, the scope of everything. Tying a story to it uses uses a lot of the Holocaust as a, you know, as a backdrop, which it shouldn't be the backdrop. It should be the focus. Yeah. And so by having a character that you're following through this, it becomes hard because as much as each person individually, um, experienced this atrocity, um, it's a story, you know, it's as much as it is a story about individuals. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's hard like it's hard because by picking a story a one person's thread through line you're either turning him into a universal person which then defeats the purpose of an individual story or you're just telling one story and making other stories less important and i think it's it's damn near impossible and i think those are the same things he was struggling with when making that film how do i do this and have it be significant and i think that's where he was he might have been sad at first to shelve that project, but I think having that excuse to shelve that project was a great relief to him. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, before we uh, wrap up, um, did you have any kind of final thoughts about Kubrick, about sort of his legacy, or or uh, any 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 last words before I line you up before the firing squad? <laughs> um. I'd have to say that the hype of him being one of the greatest uh, directors is well-earned. He was way ahead of his time in terms of his thought process about how to convey stories. Um, He was a big believer in the visual image as a means to convey a lot of information and feeling and emotion. well, I mean, as much as it was in the silent periods, um, I think I think it's a well-earned position in history as being one of the greatest directors. And I think people who... And it's weird that this is usually the first director that people get into in terms of discovering, uh, you know, a greater, deeper cinema. Yeah. And I think it's there's a reason for that because of accessibility, which he makes his films accessible to a wide range of different types of people, different ages. And, um, 
and universality of the truths that he's trying to convey about uh, humanity and the way that we are either failing or succeeding. So I think this was a good starting point for this podcast as well. Um, picking this director was a masterstroke of yours, Matt, because <laughs> it's the same thing. How do, how do people naturally get into a deeper love of cinema? And most of the times you ask nine out of ten people, they're going to say Stanley Kubrick was one of the reasons why they started seeing movies in a different light. So, uh, yeah, I think everything, all the accolades, all the praise that he has received and garnered, he's earned every single one of them through diligence, hard work, perseverance, and uh, vision. Um, A very strong vision that he has fostered and uh, changed and grew throughout the years. So, yeah, that's my my final thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, the one thing I uh, want to say, and I agree with everything that you just said, but um, I, I started this podcast with Kubrick for the exact reason that you just laid out. Um, but watching all of his movies has really illuminated for me, uh, especially in with the current events of the last couple of years, Mm. Um, just how dominant, uh, the male perspective is in cinema and, um, and also just the focus on, on violence, violence towards women in particular, but violence in general, uh, the focus on power, um, the sort of, um, bombastic and dangerous quote unquote approach to cinema. There's his, his works are, are uh, spectacular, but they're also highly masculine in their, uh, both approach, both technically and thematically and watching all of his movies in a row really illuminates that, you know, I think there's, there's many, uh, there's a a number of directors out there who are, um, similar in terms of it feeling very, um, very male. Uh, and, and that really, highlighted for me valuing where we go next who we're going to be covering because i think it's important to provide a diverse look at film not only to give other voices a chance to be heard but also just to um on a purely selfish level enjoy yourself because i think you know, mm-hmm. if we picked uh, Scorsese or Paul Thomas Anderson next, you're, you're in a situation where you're sort of just wallowing in this toxic masculinity. And there's, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't bemoan those two. I don't throw those those two guys out there to 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 um, complain about their filmographies be, because there are there are strong women in both of their filmographies. But I think uh it it is worth kind of taking a step away from that kind of uh thematic approach and and really you know allowing yourself to uh take a breath or to look at the world from a different viewpoint because that is ultimately what cinema affords us is the uh opportunity to see the world through uh, a different set of eyes and to experience 
other people's realities through um, fiction or nonfiction um, and and hear their stories and, and learn new things about people. Uh, I agree 100%. I think that's that's a very good that's a very good takeaway is is a, a modernization of the thoughts about how much we are we are completely and totally ensconced in a, a male-dominated uh, film culture and being able to step outside of that and us being able to choose um, different uh, different viewpoints and different types of people to uh, to explore makes this uh, a fascinating uh, experiment. So before we sign off, um, we did want to say uh, thank you to all of our, our guests uh, who have been on this season. It's been a really great season. Uh, I loved having uh, all of them on, except for one of them. <laughs> uh, you'll you'll have to figure out who yeah exactly wants. do you want to uh do you want to run down all the people travis oh yeah i want to say yeah thank you everyone who came and contributed uh these conversations that we had um couldn't have been uh as round and full uh without uh the help of uh all these all these people so uh i want to thank uh cole Rolaine, martin kessler erica long john lobinger david blakesley Kenneth James, Dave, oh no. Eves. Eves, is it Eves? Yeah. I almost said Eves. <laughs> I don't know why. I got blanked. It's because he's married now. I thought maybe he's taking his uh, wife's <laughs> last name. Uh, Aaron West, Doug McCambridge, and uh, Trevor Barrett. Um, thank you so much for uh, contributing to uh, our podcast. Um, so there was one other person uh, to thank, and that's Travis. Thank you, oh. Travis, for joining me on this uh, podcast and, uh, you know, taking this ride with me. And uh, I look forward to uh, some wildly different seasons and um, some some longer ones, some shorter ones and uh, and a lot more uh, conversation about these movies moving forward. I'm I'm thank you so much. And thank you, Matt, for uh, for having me and uh, including me in the future seasons and uh I'm also I'm I'm excited as much as uh, as much as you know I'm happy we are done with Kubrick because I'm excited to go exploring some uh, different territories with you for sure. And thank you to everybody who listened to the season and gave us feedback. Um, it's been um, really great to hear your thoughts on these movies and uh, on our podcast so far and sticking with us uh, over this long and winding journey. Um, and, uh, and I never do this because I don't really care, but, um, apparently if you give more reviews, the podcast is easier to find on, um, on iTunes. So you could rate us, uh, give us a review, whatever it is, uh, however you feel about the show, let us know. Uh, you can also email us or, um, find us on Facebook or wherever on Twitter, uh, the complete pod, um, Give us a give us a shout. Let us know what you thought of this season, and um, uh, hopefully you're excited to see where we go next. We're going to have a mini season coming up, uh, and um, we will reveal that shortly with the with our uh, multi million dollar rebranding. <laughs> so, what do you think, Trav? Are we done here? You know what, Matt? I think we're complete. <laughs> <laughs>